Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This week on Truth and Movies, a mother raises her baby daughter in the ruins of Aleppo in the documentary For Summer. Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez are in pole position in the true crime drama Hustlers. They can be degrading, possessive, aggressive, violent, and they never get in any trouble. And in Film Club, leave your inhibitions at the door. It's Paul Verhoeven's controversial Showgirls. She certainly didn't learn it. She learned it all right, but they don't teach it in any class. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here in the host chair, sitting across this week from David Jenkins. Hey there. And Sophie Monks-Kaufman. Hello. Welcome to the show. So what business do we have to talk about? We have a new issue, don't we, on the stands? I know. David, do you want to introduce the latest Little White Lies? Yes, I'd love to. So yeah, we have uh, issue 81 on the newsstands now and available for purchase in all honest outlets. It's uh, inspired by a film called Judy, which is a kind of film about the later segment of the life of Judy Garland. Uh, in the film, she's played by Renee Zellweger, who mm-hmm. gives this, I think, quite extraordinary performance. And it's a sort of showbiz biopic, I guess, but I think it sort of delves deeper than that. And we've kind of done an issue about it and we've got some great stuff in there, including a really amazing um, profile interview with Renee Mm -hmm. by um, the writer Guy Lodge, Mm -hmm. who kind of goes into her sort of wilderness years when she sort of moved away from from film acting for a while, took a bit of a break and and sort of regathered her marbles. And uh, We've all gone through that. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Or have it to come. (laughs) And... uh, Lots of good stuff by my colleague Sophie Monks-Kaufman as I well. wasn't just piping up so you would mention my contributions. <laughs> but yeah, like Guy Lodge is quite a coup. He's, he's an absolutely pristine, stylish writer and it's very exciting to have him in the mix. Mm-hmm. A familiar um, name from The Observer and Variety. He often does festival reviews, doesn't he? So that's quite he'll good. be blushing now if he's listening, I hope. <laughs> he deserves it. Yes. But Sophie also did a very amazing interview with uh, none other than John Walters. Wow. It's quite revealing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure we can really mention any of it on this uh, PG-rated uh, <laughs> too podcast. Hot, too hot for truth in movies. Yeah, indeed. That's fantastic. And also a, a, an amazing um, report from the Locarno Film Festival. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a, It's almost like a kind of diary entry travel log that goes into some sort of personal things and connects the experience of festivals rather than just sort of listening through the films, yeah. which is... But do you ever have that thing that happens when you're away when suddenly something big happens at home and then it somehow seems to be in the air where you are so that was my experience at Locarno Wow 
So we'll pick up the new issue to read that. Please, That's yes. on stands now. Indeed. Well, let us know what you think at the usual channels. But we should get on with this week's new releases, shouldn't we? Indeed. Up first, we have a documentary. It's called For Summer. For Sama is both an intimate and epic journey into the female experience of conflict. The film tells the story of Wad al-Khatib's life through five years of the uprising in Aleppo, Syria, as she falls in love, gets married and gives birth to Sama, all while cataclysmic conflict rises around her. Her camera captures incredible stories of loss, laughter and survival as she wrestles with an impossible choice, whether or not to flee the city to protect her daughter's life, when leaving means abandoning the struggle for freedom for which she has already sacrificed so much. So we don't have a clip for this, but we can say that it had quite a rousing review in the in the magazine. David, you wrote that. Could you please introduce this film to us? Yeah. Um, well, I'll try to, because it's a hard one to talk about, I think, because on the surface, it's a very kind of grim and dismal subject matter. And I think that, you know, when you think about the idea of, you know, taking your hard-earned paycheck down to the cinema on a Friday night to have a nice time, you wouldn't necessarily equate it with seeing a, a documentary about the you know what's happening in Syria mm. um but i just want to sort of negate that by saying that this really is like essential stuff and um you know whatever you hear us say about the film i just think it's it's something that you've got to take a bit of a leap of faith with and and just sort of know that it's quite essential viewing maybe sophie will will disagree with me but like uh, this is my personal take on it it's essentially a kind of diary film about the director's experience through this conflict in Aleppo, Syria, it charts the bombardment of Aleppo by Assad and his kind of Russian forces that he ha- that he's working in alignment with. And um, Al Khatib is at the beginning of the film. She introduces this idea of she's got a young, a very young baby daughter called Sama, who is throughout like obviously oblivious to what's going mm. on. I mean, this is. You know, she doesn't have any conception of the world and, and right or wrong, good or bad. So I think she sort of sells this to her daughter almost as a kind of film framing device as well as like, I want to make this so you can see what happened to your the place mm. you grew up in. At the point that she does it, I you know, you have to question whether she anticipates exactly where this story is going to go and some of the things that she is going to see and capture with her camera, which kind of range from utterly unwatchably grim Mm. and depressing and heartbreaking to actually quite poetic and transcendent and the way that the film has been edited it's not necessarily earmarked as to what bits are the grim bits and what bits are the joyful bits but there is kind of this really strange mix of both things happening at the same time where the way people deal with conflict and uh, this idea of connection to a home and a city and what it means to people and the lengths people go to protect that idea is all on show and um yeah i mean full confession i i have a a young daughter myself Mm -hmm. and and uh you try to watch these films in a bubble disconnected from the the realities of your own life and your own concerns and it was really tough to watch this film with that this thing that i could not remove from my own conscience and psyche in my head and it's almost sort of a filter through the film but actually i think the more i think about it i think that everyone will will see something 
in the film that they can relate to on that level, whether it is a child or a family member, or a, a partner, a, a city, a building. Like there's something that I think that you, you can build a connection with. So I don't know if that's a too abstract way of dealing mm-hmm. with the film. That was but. really beautiful. I, I, and it's made me really want to talk about this, how filmmakers make dark subjects digestible for audiences who yeah they don't necessarily want to go and watch the pure misery of conflict and I guess I want to make a point on structural narrative level when Waid al-Khatib was initially putting it together it was purely chronological but it became too bleak and hence now you've got this slightly mashed up structure where you're zigging and zagging between time periods like 2011 when Aleppo was actually a free city and people were joyous and happy and it was a wonderful place to live and they thought that yeah they'd got what they wanted which was like freedom from oppression and then the tragic fact that no not at all so it moves backwards and forwards through times and then you've got summer there as like this bright spot in the middle crawling around with big eyes and so yeah so the way that the film is structured and the way that summer is used as a motif it's really a class in how to tell stories in such a way that people never entirely give up hope, those watching. But yeah, the other point I wanted to make, and there's a question really, is just, I think often in our line of work, we watch films that really, their logline is not enticing. It's like a pitch of pure misery, but yet there can often be so much meaning and profundity there. So it's like, how do we talk about, how do we frame these films that on the surface are not what people want to see in a way that does justice to how much they actually do offer? Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with you on there, but and I think that we can't lie about it. We can't, you know, there is always that kind of option of, well, maybe we can sugarcoat the reality of what this film is and actually try and sell it as something else. As like, oh, it's a- actually this a romp, a romp, yeah. <laughs> it and, is not a, a romp, and, and it is not a romp, and it is unflinching. And there is stuff that you will see in the film that you, I, I don't think I'll ever forget, really. Mm-hmm. And we should probably flag what they are in a little. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, to a point. I think most people could probably fill in the blanks. Of, you know, let, let's just say that Al Khatib, she filmed everything. You know, mm. she she started filming a year before the narrative of the film starts. She just had a camera, and she was filming family conversations, and she was filming very banal things. She was filming the community. And I don't think you really see much of this early footage in the film because she, I think, she was just trying out this idea of, well, what happened if I just started to film stuff and get used to a, having a camera in my hand and also destigmatize it for the people in my close vicinity. Basically what you're getting in the film is the point where her family and her community are used to the fact that she's filming stuff. You're almost getting a, a more unguarded view of life there and there are a few moments where people are conscious of the camera and they and they see it as a kind of portal to say something. As soon as you see in a camera, you kind of see, think of this, this idea of like, oh, this is the way that this tragedy is going to be seen by a wide audience and salvation maybe on at the other end. But um, at the same time, you see a lot of people just doing things that feel quite natural and aren't necessarily like performative like you get in a lot of documentaries mm-hmm. well, we should say that she's married to and indeed Sam's father is a doctor named Hamza so all of the action is rooted in the hospital that he runs which ends up being the only functioning hospital in Aleppo because the Russians find out where the hospitals are and they bomb them and so this is the base a hospital where you see young kids like bringing in their even tinier kids and 
you see it, oh, you're in the eye of this. Like the sort of images that you see are stuff you might get in flickers on the, on the news and be like, my God. But here you just get almost a behind the scenes on that type of like shocking news footage without going into too much details. There are just certain moments that are so personal of like a mother in a moment of realising that her tiny child is dead, just holding it and being like, it's my son. Of course it's my son. Of course I'm going to hold him. And it's just shocking. And it's absolutely heartbreaking, actually. I'm like low-key tearing up thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this is a fascinating film, as you say. So we're going behind the scenes of what we see on the news, and literally so, because Wad Al-Khatib, while she was out there, was sending her footage over to Channel 4 News. Many people may have seen this, her footage already during the documentation of the conflict through the news. And this is such a fascinating standalone work, incorporating much of that footage and saying something in its own right. I think it's worth mentioning also that the film is actually co-directed mm-hmm. with what Wad Al-Khatib and a guy called Ed- Edward Watts, who I believe sort of helped shape the film. Mm. It is a collaboration on their part, but you know, I think the amount of footage she had and I guess the trauma that would have incurred to actually have to revisit consistently the images that she'd captured would require some kind of, you know, doesn't strike me as a kind of lonely solo mission, really. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's something that you may need help with. So the thing that puts me off about documentaries sometimes is if it is like when they have a sense of like advocacy to them where it feels like they're selling you a point or they're coming from a, a specific vantage and we're going to show you our side of a story. And I think with this film, you kind of get that implicitly because, you know, it's from someone who is in the middle of a war and she is showing her experiences. And Not a war. What, sorry, yes, of course, this bombardment. And, um, and the framing device of her of a confession to her daughter, almost a kind of memoir to her daughter. Also a wrangling with her conscience. She's like, will you ever forgive me? Exactly. The question becomes more existential about, mm. should I have brought you into this world? Mm-hmm. You know, was I selfish in doing so? There are also points where maybe... She could have gotten out of that and, you know, should exactly, she have? Exactly, yeah. And that's where this film may, not to use a loaded term like transcend, but become more than a film that people who have interest in that conflict would come to. Absolutely. More than that, really. I mean, th- I think this is what I mentioned before about it hitting me quite hard because mm-hmm. of this sort of personal angle is because it does talk about, like, the idea of what it means to have a child in a broader sense and, you know, that you become a protector by proxy and uh, everyone is put into a different situation and you just have to deal with it and you know obviously I'm not equating my situation with with her situation but you know I think this speaks to a much wider idea and than, than the subject of the, f- the film. It's a very extreme example of how children are helpless before the values of their parents. There's this moment when the family have gone to visit their grandparents in Turkey and while they're away all the roads back to Aleppo have been bombed and they decide to go back, not to stay in Turkey. And Hamza, who's the father of Sama, he says, we all have a role in this conflict, even you, Sama, talking to this tiny baby. And it's like, Sama doesn't decide whether she has a role <laughs> in the conflict. The freedom-fighting values of her family have determined that she does. And, yeah, that is a very extreme example, not one that either of you are likely to face in the course of your parenting. But still, you know, it's like, this is a tiny, helpless child and in some way, big or small, your values are shaping them every moment. Totally. I think for better and for worse, you kind of, this idea of like nature and nurture and like bringing up a child in your image 
all that's good and all that's bad about that. So I'm bringing you up in my image and I'm sorry, you know, I can't not do this. This is just mm. who I am and, you know, this is the way it needs to go. What scores would you give this, David? This feels, should we even put scores on a film like this? I know, but... yeah. I think I said this in my review that scores don't really work for this film. But I kind of came to it with a, an element of scepticism, I guess, because there are, you know, I do feel there are quite a lot of films about conflict and war mm. and documentaries, I should say. And um, so I, I was probably like a three star. Although, you know, I had heard it had been in Cannes and it had got a positive reception Six from there. Six minutes standing ovation, I hear. So there you go. So, um, you know, I, I was definitely intrigued. But no, I was just really like jaws to the floor the whole mm. for the whole thing, and uh, you just think this is a, a great documentary maker fully formed on her first film, and mm. uh, would she ever need to make another film after this? You know? I think you say in your interview in the magazine, or she says in your interview with her in the magazine that she's not picked up a camera. That's an interesting detail. Mm-hmm. I kind of said, "Have you picked up that camera again since you've been home?" And she's like, "No, I haven't. T- I've not only have I not picked it up, I've not touched it." it's on a shelf and it's going to be a long time before I can even touch it again mm-hmm. it's become a kind of museum piece in my own house so Sophie what scores would you give for Salma? I would rather not give it scores but uh, if I have to Hey let's not give it scores Okay We can do that Okay let's not give the it scores The editor right, right here of A Little White Lies yeah. saying we don't I'm have to give scores I'm calling it no scores Okay <laughs> But it's essential viewing People can infer scores yeah, from what we say Yeah please listen to our words if that's not too hard an ask <laughs> We'll give Hustler scores, though. Yeah, oh yeah. Yes. Well, that, that's for Sama, which is in cinemas this week. And there's really no elegant way to transition between this and the next film, but we're going to do the hustle next with Hustlers. Based on a New York magazine article, Hustlers follows a crew of savvy former strip club employees who band together to turn the tables on their Wall Street clients. Leading the ensemble in this film are Jennifer Lopez and Crazy Rich Asians breakout star Constance Wu. Let's hear a clip. CEOs, CFOs, investment bankers, corporate raiders, hedge funders, axe murderers coming straight from the crime scene into the club. But not through the front, oh no. These guys, they don't want to be written about on page six. They come through the back. They take the private elevator to the one room without cameras. And they don't leave till they spend $10,000, $15,000 in one night. They can be degrading, possessive, aggressive, violent. And they never get in any trouble because everyone's willing to cover their tracks. Because deep down, they all want what they got. They all want to be on top where there are no consequences. You're just another deal to them. And that's all they are to you. It's business. And it's a more honest transaction than anything else they did that day. Let's get down to business. Sophie, Hustlers any good? It is, yes. It's a surprising beast. Pretty serious social story wrapped in elaborate strippers clothing. (laughs) And it's quite an interesting film to watch because you're not... I was never really at any point exactly sure what his aims were until actually afterwards when I really started thinking about it and I I read the really, really, really great New York magazine story that it's based on and which I have to say, kudos to Lorraine Scavaria. The tone of this article is really odd. That odd tone is also in the film. It's very distinctive and it's really been carried over. What do you mean by that? How is it odd? um, A lot of the film is money porn. It's like these ladies, they hustle these wealthy strip club frequenting men out of their money and then they go 
and shopping sprees and all the female bonding that takes place in it is like through elaborate gifts there's one Christmas at JLo's everyone's opening gifts and they just get more and more elaborate and it like ends with constant we're opening a chinchilla fair so (laughs) it's just like yeah it's like everything these women aspire to for them is symbolic of security is just wealth Mm -hmm. that is the apex of it so it feels almost like an ode to like capitalism in a certain way and I was saying to you earlier Michael it kind of reminded me of like the bling ring meets Wolf of Wall Street because it's so so materialistic but also even though it's it's like having fun aesthetically with all these fine high quality material goods the way that the actresses are playing it is quite like really really earnest and they just want a better hand than they've been dealt at this point they just want to hustle their way higher up the food chain by odd tone it's like this balance between this really like glitz and glam aesthetic and then just this quite like earnest aspirational characterizations does it satisfy both those as well because i've not seen this film yet the trailer and the marketing materials are very much j-lo centric it's all about the the pole dancing it's about the cameos from cardi b or lizzo and so on is this magic mic oh. but for female uh, uh, dancers as well uh, yeah there's an element of that i mean i have to say the note i wrote down on my pad at j-lo's entrance was how dare she because this woman is 50 years old and the thing she was doing on the pole shall i read out my list of her pole dance moves all the techniques we need yeah. to learn go for it yeah Carousel, Peter Pan, Fairy Sit, Stag, Reverse Stag, Scissor Sit, Tabletop, Martini, Fireman. And she looks astonishing and her moves are astonishing. Lorraine Scafaria has said that this is in a way a sports movie and like stripping is presented in a way that you really see the athleticism required. So I've forgotten your question because I'm now just thinking about J-Lo's <laughs> astonishing stamina well, and grace. Let's stick with J-Lo then. The film premiered at Toronto International Film Festival just this week and already, as people on, on Twitter tend to, that there's speculation over will this be Jennifer Lopez's Oscar play. Mm-hmm. David, do you fancy your chances? Weirdly, I was on the tube this morning coming in to record this. Someone was watching Made in Manhattan on their phone, so clearly there are J-Lo fans out there Doing the their deep research. <laughs> yeah. A resurgence. My wife is a big fan of Made in Manhattan, but I don't like it very much. And that's one of the few things we disagree on so, in life. So, you there also we go. disagree on Manchester by the Sea. Oh, yes. Okay, that's another one. <laughs> I know well. quite a lot yeah. about your home life. But in answer to your question, I can't imagine a timeline in which she doesn't get some kind of industry acknowledgement for her performance here. It really is quite astonishing. Um, the only thing I could think of was trying to, in a very sort of like snooty cinephile kind of way, equating her to people like Barbara Stanwyck and Marlena Dietrich. And she just exudes this air of this classic era Hollywood grand dame, like mm-hmm. femme fatale. She just owns the camera. She is introduced doing a pole dance to a Fiona Apple song, oh, okay. <laughs> which, is, which is quite an odd choice, but it works. It's a bit cheesy in a way, but it's just... The, the, she pulls it off in in an incredible fashion. There were tears in my eyes. I, I too was actually like gobsmacked by it. I thought, oh wow, this is going to be like a musical. This is going to be like Sid Charisse doing like the bandwagon or something. Her sort of athleticism and the way she dances is just astonishing. It really feels like this is the moment, as you say, the apex. Like she has parlayed everything that she's done in in her life and career. There is just a wealth of experience all there up on the screen. I also thought Constance Wu was really great in the film as well as a kind of naive 
young upstart. She is kind of placed into our position as viewers when J-Lo's doing her dance at the beginning. She's just agog at what she's seeing and, and instantly sidles up to her and says, can you tell me how to do that, please? Before that, the first thing J-Lo says to her, she kind of like slinks past and mutters, doesn't money make you horny? Oh, yes. <laughs> Terrific. That's a true story. <laughs> <laughs> you're on Team JLo, aren't you, Sophie? You're, you're all in on, on the block. Broadly, absolutely on Team JLo, yeah. How do you think this film fares? We're getting a glut of these sort of female dominated crime films, often with some sort of hustling. We had Widows last year, we have The Kitchen coming up, which is mafia wives taking over the crime families. And then we had Oceans 8 as well last year, the all female Oceans film. And The Hustle, a very similarly titled film with Anne Hathaway, I think earlier this year. How does this fare within that within that landscape? Is this the one to watch? I preferred it to Widows. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the Oceans movie. Can we go into a bit of detail about the story go here? For it. That's what kept it ticking over in my mind, the, the, the like singularity and specificity of this type of hustle, which is, you can't just say it's like a general hustle, it's like very particular. The title hustle makes it sound quite benign. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where the reality is a bit different. The reality is fascinating. Okay, so J-Lo plays Ramona Vega and the timeline that Constance Wu's character Destiny, although her real name is Dorothy we find out, meets her is like just before the financial crash and all the Wall Street guys just have too much money and they're throwing it all at this club and all is well and this is where it reminded me of like the Wolf of Wall Street just like everyone's getting a slice of the action everyone's delighted money 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 trickle down yeah (laughs) Uh, and then the the crash happens and like tragically these Wall Street guys they've got less money to burn and so Ramona comes up with a particular plan for fleecing them which is I think I'm okay to say certain clients have become so regular that they have their contact details so she will call up one send like a sexy picture lure him out and then they'll tip a mix of ketamine and MDMA into his drink and then like take his card, get his PIN number and just like take out as much as they can. I mean, the structure is really odd and interesting because it's kind of repetitious. Like there, you see a lot of this, you see a lot of the individual stings. And so you have a kind of sense of the individual male characters that are getting stung, some of whom you, you don't feel for, some of whom you feel for a little more. And these individual case studies are very much taken wholesale from the New York Magazine article. And yeah, the film presents without like sensational comment what they're doing. You see the women being treated badly by men in the strip club, but you also see them being treated like in a way that's given the saying comparatively benign but what emerges as a through line is the fact that these are business women they are totally savvy to the fact of like men a week before their bodies and they're like how much can we take you for and what's a little drugging in the mix i think the whole film is about like this idea of can you be a catalyst and still have an emotional hold on on like human relations mm-hmm. and i think as the film goes on you see that there is maybe a bit of a tension between... Actually, maybe maybe not, but, like, you know, J-Lo's character, Ramona, certainly doesn't have that. Like, she sees capitalism for what it is as something that you have to take away that emotional level. You can't be sympathetic. You just have to grab it and go. And, and you know, this idea of after the sting, their kind of get-out clause, the thing that sort of allows them to take the money and run is that the shame of having to admit that you, you've done this and gone to a club and spent all this money would be too much and it would ruin families and it would it would involve you having to talk in court or, you know, they, they see that as their kind of safety mm-hmm. barrier almost. 
I think my issue with the film is, to go back to what you are saying about these other female crime mo- movies, I sometimes think there's this idea of, like, like, especially with something like Ocean's 8, it's like that film is really desperate to present this idea that even though they're criminals, they're heroes, and that what they're doing is completely fine, they're good people, that we should be rooting for them, and we should absolutely not question any anything they do and everyone who is if something bad happens to them they absolutely without shadow of a doubt deserve it and I think maybe Widows in a way does that as well it, it kind of it works hard to make make sure that the people who you're rooting for morally they're, they're kind of on your side mm-hmm. that, or that you, you, you are able to root for them without any kind of guilt I don't know if you agree with this Sophie but I think that this film had a, it wavered with that it kind of teased this idea of maybe that we shouldn't be you've got this kind of glamorous world they're very charismatic they have this very intuitive and sincere friendship but at the same time are we supposed to be rooting for them I don't think it celebrates them it presenting a certain type of value system and if my issue with the film is that it's just the frustration of like just on a character level why are you all about money like of course I understand that if you come from nothing money is symbolic of security but the film doesn't really go into that at all there's one moment where there's a framing device as well where Constance Wu's character Dorothy is being interviewed by the New York magazine journalist and the journalist played by Julius Stiles is kind of questioning her about this line of like why did you do it and then she sort of flips it on her and says well where did you go to school? What was your upbringing like? Because, you know, you could never understand the desire to want money because you've never needed it. Whereas I have my whole life and there is a sort of sense of the idea of like wanting money is something we can't comprehend, maybe. Mm. Well, the reason the film grew and grew on me is that I really enjoyed it, but also there was something in there that didn't quite satisfy me that I didn't quite, couldn't quite articulate in the moment to myself. But then... The reason why it's grown on me to repeat myself, <laughs> like a doddering old lady, the conversations around it are fascinating and perhaps they add that element that I wish was in the film. There's a really wonderful interview with the director and some of the actors, not J-Lo, unfortunately, but Constance Wu, on a Deadline podcast. And Lorene Scafari is talking about how the film is about our broken value system and, you know, like the fact of these women just being obsessed with money is like indicative of like you know wrong think that is totally out there and the fact that like the men they're duping they're duping because of their sex appeal so it's like the film is broad in a certain way but then the conversations that are coming out of it are great and leaving aside the fact that it's based on an article and it's very true to that article in certain respects it's quite broad and quite repetitious and that didn't quite work for me on a structural level but the issues in there are so ripe that um, it is very much worth watching the movie and, sorry, I hate myself for saying this, joining in the conversation. <laughs> well, what scores would you give this one, Sophie? Uh, Are we giving this one scores, David? Just need to yeah, check yeah, with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to run it by you now. <laughs> Anticipation 3, there was a sudden burst of hype for it out of Toronto. Then Enjoyment 3, then In Retrospect 4. Mm-hmm. David? I would probably go for Anticipation Two, it just looked from the outset like a pretty bad J Lo movie. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I know, How I know. Dare you. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I c- it was hard to tell. And then I think it would probably enjoyment like three or four, three and a half. Mm-hmm. 
and then probably a three for for in retrospect. I I think I enjoyed it more in the moment, and then yeah, it left me wanting a little. But yeah, in fact, this conversation has made it a bit of a deeper and meatier prospect, maybe. Well, this is I think it plants certain seeds that then grow within you. From what you were saying before, there is there is this idea of people thinking they can do stuff because other people are doing it. Yeah. They see others' degradation and moral inhibition and think, well, if they're doing it, why why can't we just in this different way? Yeah, Ramona's, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but her party line, whenever Constant Wu gets like feeling bad, she's like, you think these guys haven't done worse stuff on Wall Street? And that's like the only thing she cares about. They're, she In her mind, they're, they're doing it, she's going to do it. Hmm. Well, that's Hustlers in cinemas this week, as is for Sama. Up next, we have... Film Club, which this week is Showgirls. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The glam and grime of Las Vegas nightlife, a critically mauled box office bomb on release, the rise and fall of wannabe showgirl Nomi has had a series of reappraisals over the years. Is it a camp classic, a cult exploitation flick, or simply the most lacerating showbiz satire of them all? Take your pick. Here's a clip. That's enough. Thank you, ladies. Oh. <laughs> Good job. Okay. Work with honor turns. I'm worried about her balance. All right. How long do you think it'll be before I can do the show? You're starting tonight. Tonight? You'll be fine. <sighs> How did she do? She's no butterfly. Tony, she's all pelvic thrust. I mean, she prowls. Change your spot. She's got it. I wonder how she got it. 
Well, she certainly didn't learn it. She learned it all right, but they don't teach it in any class. A clip from Showgirls there. First off, we're going to read an email from Matt Cox. Thanks, Matt, for your email here. He watched Showgirls for the first time when he heard that we were doing this for Film Club. Apologies for putting you through that, Max. No. That's what we need. We need fresh blood in it. Fresh blood. Matt says, I loved it and was gripped from start to finish and think the hyperbolic style was a perfect way to convey the critique of Vegas, America and capitalism. A superficial hyperbole and sensory overload is a big part of how these institutions draw us in and preserve themselves. Showgirls is about someone surviving in this type of world and on the same note, I think Elizabeth Berkeley is unironically brilliant too. It's weird reading reviews from when it came out as it was dismissed by some as if it were born out of technical incompetence like The Room, but it's not badly made at all. Wow. Matt, thank you so much for that, setting off our conversation on a high. So, David, what's your history with Showgirls? You like it, don't you? You're a big fan. Ooh, interesting. Well, I almost feel now that we've gone through so many sort of revolutions mm-hmm. of, like, it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad, and now we're at a place where it is universally <laughs> acknowledged as one of the uh, great masterpieces of the late 20th century, and uh, <laughs> indisputably so. There's even a film recently called Eden... Uh-huh. A French film by Mia Hansen Love. And there is a sequence in it which actually involves a bunch of friends sitting and watching showgirls and uh, <laughs> explaining that it's it's actually a mis- <laughs> a maligned masterpiece. So, you know, it's kind of seeped into the culture in quite a deep way. It's a film that I'm always excited to see, um, <laughs> but I've never quite understood the full masterpiece status, but I've definitely thought, as a massive, massive Verhoeven fan, I've always kind of seen good in it and found it very enjoyable. And, you know, I think that this idea of of it being this kind of very, very brash, knowingly seedy satire, you could even argue that there's like, is he trying to go for some kind of documentary style Mm. (laughs) like showing all the kind of extrovert behavior for what it is also you know you have this idea of elizabeth berkeley in the lead probably best known to maybe our listeners aren't familiar with the uh, the tv serial saved by the bell are you guys uh, saved by the bell heads it's all right because i'm saved by the bell In Saved by the Bell, Elizabeth Berkeley plays Jessie, who is like this nerdy, very kind of... She's the sort of sensible one. She's physically imposing. Almost like feels like the adult in the room mm-hmm. in Saved by the Bell. You can't help but watch this film and think, is this Jessie's future? You know, is, is this a continuation of Saved by the Bell? Is, did something happen and she went off and wanted to become a, an exotic dancer in Vegas? And there is the idea of like, Paul Verhoeven very much knows that and is is playing on taking a TV actor and putting her at the centre of this big Hollywood production and maybe she's not ready yet and the film is about that. You know, Mm -hmm. it's someone coming from nowhere and uh, suddenly all eyes are on her. But there's also this subplot about a character who is trying to lure her away and to do something that's more artistically valuable take the dancing that she's doing you know erotic dancing and do you know it's like modern dance mm-hmm. you know it's it's kind of presenting that in a slightly different way in a more arty way and and i think that again it's a very fascinating element to the film that you can look at the same thing in all these different ways and through all these different lenses you can look at it as a, as trash you can look at it as high art they're both the same thing at mm-hmm. the same time I, I think for me I have enjoyed this film in the past the writing on this film is, is really wonderful but 
the thing that I always come back to is it's such a deeply cynical film and cynicism in all directions. Even that subplot, as you say, there's this dancer who wants to mould the exotic dance into something modern and artistic. He's a complicated character. He just You're not really sure whether he just wants to bed these young strippers whilst presenting to them some more high art lifestyle. So it's such a deeply cynical, dark film that's hard to really like for me, even though it is so camp and over the top and watching with the right group of people you can have a great time but Sophie what's your history with this and I, I love that you always come with story time for us <laughs> yes. you've already opened up a book here to read for I us have. but what's your history first so I watched it yesterday for the second time the first time I watched it I was just astonished I was doing uncanny laughter throughout <laughs> as much as it has got this you know, if you're in the film scene, you're aware of Showgirls and how it's transformed from being, like, making records for winning the most Razzies to now being on people's best films uh, of the 20th century in sight and sound polls. So, you know, I knew all of that. But the first time I watched it, I still... I, I just couldn't believe my eyes, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So yesterday, obviously, I knew I had a, more of a sense of, of what I was in for. But Elizabeth Berkeley's performance widely reviled and it destroyed her career that movie every time she's on screen I loved it I love that performance Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where I sit on the movie as a whole but that performance I love it yeah we talk so often about the way women are used by male directors and on this podcast the two of us have spoken about this with certain new releases or film clubs and this is one where Paul Verhoeven in his very amped up style is in some ways using exploitation to make a point, but is also exploiting at the same time. Elizabeth Berkeley's career was ruined by this film. Paul Verhoeven went on to make many films after this, good films as well. What's your take on that? This is a film with so much nudity at every turn, but it's not necessarily used for titillating ends, Or, but is it exploitation? How do you feel about this? Um, well, I am convinced that Elizabeth Berkeley will be rewarded in the next life and that <laughs> history will reclaim her as the icon that mm-hmm. she clearly is in this film. When we reach enlightenment, she will have her place in the pantheon. Mm-hmm. Does anyone know what she's up to now? I mean, like, I almost feel that, like, some hip director should cast her in a film. I'm like, surprised she wasn't in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or yeah. something. Yeah. We always have this idea of, like, movie stars who disappear, like, somehow their lives are failures. Maybe she's, like, living on a farm somewhere, uh, riding horses every day. Like Phoebe Cates. Is that what she does now? Yeah. 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 80s, 90s star who just thought, no, don't want this anymore and went off and did something else. Hmm. Yeah, but it would be good to know that she's okay. I don't know how we're going to get this confirmation. Uh, Did she give many interviews about how she felt after it came out? No, there's the interview with Cal McLaughlin where he reflects on watching this film for the first time and he was just absolutely shocked. I mean, he should have known when he looked himself in the mirror when he got on set and he was given that haircut. (laughs) But he says that this this shows the gap between what you're making on set and the way it's presented because he was really horrified by what he saw. What did he think he was making? Exactly. He was there for the sex scene. He was in it. <laughs> <laughs> and the lap dance scene as well. Exactly. There a couple of Well, you you, you mentioned how J-Lo in, um, in Hustlers shows the real athleticism behind the dancing. I think Elizabeth Berkeley throws herself into this, well, this is literally. A, it's a virtuoso physical performance. She never leaves a room. She, like whooshes out of a room <laughs> every single tiny movement she does is just the most over top thing you ever saw in your whole life and she does it repeatedly again and again so the energy levels she brings are off the charts I think she gets slated because it seems like oh she just doesn't know how to act but it jives with the film and the, everything in the film is over the top and so of course her performance is mm-hmm. 
David made a really good point earlier that segues into the section I've chosen to read. You mentioned, Jenks, that there's been a lot of writing, uh, great writing around this film. And indeed, one man that we know of our acquaintance has written an entire little book of it Mm -hmm. called It Doesn't Suck, which is like a payoff line in lots of different scenes. It's called It Doesn't Suck and it's by Adam Neyman. It's her catchphrase. Yeah, Yeah. like (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Just one of many Joe Estevez specials in the film. I'm going to read a little section from his book. Just before this quote that I'm going to read, he kind of points out that people are often torn as they are in Eden between whether it's like a masterpiece or a piece of trash. Then he says, Behind door three, however, lies the tantalising possibility that the movie might be both at the same time. A masterpiece that is somehow also a piece of shit. This third option is especially attractive to those who believe or condone the idea that something can be so bad that it's good that it is possible to derive pleasure from an inept work of art, not in spite of its shortcomings, but because of them. And for me, that's the greatest case anyone could make for Showgirls, that it is behind door three, <laughs> something that is so bad that it's good. And that's, that phrase has become a cliche, that people just trot out when they enjoy something that they know isn't good. But few films achieve that perfect synthesis mm-hmm. of bad and good as Showgirls. Pulling back for a sec to talk about Paul Verhoeven, mm-hmm. who is one of my like all-time faves. I, I mean, I think RoboCop and Starship Troopers and Total Recall are just, you know, I've watched them in the sort of 20, 30 time bracket and uh, I absolutely love them. And it's that kind of strange thing where you're watching a film and it's I think it's, you know, auteurism, this idea of the director as an artist who has these motifs and each film is somehow connected in this very deep way. It's strange to watch Showgirls because from my perspective, I think this film is made by a master director. Like, <laughs> you know, he must know what he's doing. Every choice made here must be purposeful and there must be an intent to it. I can't believe that someone like this would just make this movie and it would be a bad piece of craftsmanship in, in, you know, in, in as objective a way that you could say. But So for me, watching this film is tough because it's, you know, it isn't like necessarily enjoyable in the same way as something like Starship Troopers is which has like I think it has those levels at a point where they're they're much more evenly balanced mm-hmm. you can watch it as a very enjoyable popcorn sci-fi film or you can watch it as a completely different set of satire or you can watch it as as this kind of teen movie and uh and I don't necessarily think this film has the point where those levels meet is is not as obvious. You asked earlier if it's an exploitation film. Listening to you talk then, David, I think he is an exploitation director. He takes glee in, in trash. The images he creates, he's not beholden to good taste, is he? Sometimes that works really well and sometimes it doesn't. So I just think it's that potential for misfire that comes when you cast off the shackles of trying to have taste I think it's just like it's just a slight scattershot and I think you see even in his later films like Elle which is a much more serious film than Showgirls but still has these like I'm thinking of the scene where Isabel Huppert's in the bath and a little triangle of blood forms like these very hyperbolically graphic images like he, he loves that stuff and he always slots it in there whatever he's making mm-hmm. I would say he's not an exploiter He's a provocateur. Mm-hmm. I think there's something very knowing about him sort of floating these images and ideas out onto the screen and, you know, he just wants to get a rise. He's he's kind of like Lars von Trier in a way. But yet, yet he, he's such a unique case because he was a provocateur who was given the privilege of being a Hollywood filmmaker for a decade with the budgets and the access and the, the platform to work within 
popular genres and make popular movies that were also satires or simultaneously a spoof or a parody or trash at the same time as being something. This is a, a film which was released as an NC-17 in the States, the only film at that point that was given such a wide release with that rating. Nars Show would never have that no, platform, true. that canvas to work on. Yeah, you're right. I don't think they're really comparable as well because Lars Montreal is, is such a miserableist and there's so much of his own open melancholy woven into his films. And whereas Paul Verhoeven is more like gleeful, I would say. Mm. That is the, right. that, that is the emotion. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, credit to him, like when Showgirls won all its Razzies, he went there to collect it. So he's not precious. He embraces his fallen status. But, but what is one of his films that you would happily watch and hold up if, say, this is somebody's first exposure to Verhoeven and they don't get the hype? The two that I love the most are Robocop, which is like a 90-minute ultra-violent takedown of private enterprise, which mm. which is always a good thing. And then I think Starship Troopers is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Like the, the way that film has matured, you maybe have to look at a film at the time you know time changes movies i guess and and i think that film still is a different film every time you watch it as real life politics change as attitudes change as the sort of the bar gets lower <laughs> you, you watch a film like starship troopers and you think this is like documentary reality <laughs> And well, that, that brings us back to Showgirls once more. How that is a film that, as tastes have changed, as mainstream movie making has changed, as what is seen as controversial on screen changes. Uh, I, I, and in fact, I think at the end of Starship Troopers probably has Paul Verhoeven's greatest moment, where everyone gathers round and kills a brain. <laughs> <laughs> that is a perfect emblem of his filmmaking goals. And that's the big triumph of the film. What an image. Terrific. So a couple of recommendations there for how to follow Showgirls. Shout out also to Basic Instinct. Oh, yes, of course. Sorry, uh, I forgot. Truly delicious 90s erotic and, thriller. And all of his like Dutch language stuff. You're a fan of Spetters, aren't Spetters, you? Spetters, The Fourth Man, mm-hmm. Turkish Delight, all amazing. I don't think they're very available, are they? I think DVD rather mm. than Blu-ray. Yeah. But, you know... I'm sure if you searched eBay, they're definitely out there. Okay. The Soldier of Orange as well with the great Rutger Hauer. Yeah. Yeah, all his early ones are really good. We just happen to have chosen his most divisive film Indeed. to talk about today. Anyway, Sophie, David, thank you so much for talking about Showgirls and the two new releases this week with me. Next week's new releases are Ad Astra, Brad Pitt in Space, The Farewell, Festival Favourites, and a surprise hit in the States as well. And then for Film Club, we're playing on the way that sci-fi films in space can actually be opportunities to look inward with Tarkovsky's Russian classic Solaris. Let us know what you think of those films or any of the films we discussed today at the usual channels, Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Although, of course, there's the comments section as well um, at ldualize.com slash podcast. Sophie David, one more thank you from me. I'm Michael Eden, as always. This is a 7 Digital production. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.